So we're starting out a new sermon series today. We're launching into this new campaign where we are going to be looking together at Jesus' last night of his ministry here on this earth prior to his crucifixion. We're going to be looking at five chapters together that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Really, John gives us an eyewitness account walking with Jesus through this final night. We're, we're titled this Jesus' Farewell Message. And really what it is, is it's, it's Jesus' final time together with his disciples prior to the crucifixion where he's talking about so many important things, promises, commands, these incredible eternal truths. And he's reminding us that our faith isn't intended to be a part-time pursuit in our life. That really our relationship with Him and our relationship with God is the reason that we exist. And so we're going to dive deeply into this because it is my desire that you would move and take your next step beyond just knowing stuff about Jesus and knowing information, about knowing the events that took place in the upper room. My desire is that we would move beyond knowledge and we would really see the heart of God. We would really experience the truth and the love of God and how that impacts us and transforms us. So I want to just jump right into our text today. But before I do, I want to give you a little bit of context because I think this is important so we understand where we're at in the big overarching story. Jesus has been walking alongside of his disciples for three years. It has been three years since he was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. He's been now ministering for these three years all around the countryside and he has recently in his ministry, not been able to move about freely because the pressure is now so intense by the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders who are trying to have him arrested, Jesus had to take uh, some time where he wasn't moving about publicly, but he breaks that in a really dramatic way. After a time of isolation with his disciples, Jesus comes out, and just a couple weeks prior to this, he raises Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days and in the grave in just a few hours outside of the city of Jerusalem. So, <coughs> it was hugely public, the way that he raised Lazarus from the dead, and everyone's talking about it. In fact, the Jewish leaders are so annoyed by this that the Bible says, they intended to kill Jesus and Lazarus just because everybody is talking about what Jesus has done. So now, after Lazarus is raised from the dead, the following weekend, Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem for the biggest event of the year, the Passover festival. Jesus arrives and there's massive crowds that have gathered to see, is Jesus going to show up? Is he going to come? And when he does... <coughs> Sorry, guys. He comes in grand fashion. He comes riding on a donkey as crowds shout out, Hosanna, and they lay the palm branches before him on the road. They, they shout out, Hail, King of Israel! Hail, Son of David! They shout out, Save us! Hosanna! And he rides into the city. Now, all of this is buzzing, all of this is swirling, and they're expecting that Jesus is going to march up to the high point of the city where the Romans have uh, the palace, where they're holding court, and he's going to boot the Romans out. He's going to free the Jews of their oppressive uh, Roman leadership, except he doesn't go there. Instead, he goes to the temple, and he starts turning over the tables of the money changers. He says, I'm going to actually tear down and destroy this temple. 
And in three days, I'm going to raise it back up. And the, the crowds are confused. The crowds are frustrated. The crowds are disappointed that Jesus isn't doing what they expected him to do. And so from this moment, a week ago, now just four days ago, in fact, four days before, they're shouting, Hosanna! Now tomorrow morning, they're going to shout, crucify him. So Jesus now is in his really last night with his guys. And he's going to gather together with them in an intimate setting to celebrate together the Passover feast. And so that's where we're going to begin tonight. Jesus has come into the city. It's now Thursday night. He rode into the city on Sunday for the first time. He's been going back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem. And now Thursday night, he's eating in the city in a place called the Upper Room. And here he is with his disciples, John 13, verse 1 through 11. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you, God, that your word trains us. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And I pray right now that you would help us as we dive into your word to really see your heart. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I want you to picture with me for a moment the most painful situation you've ever experienced. The worst day of your life. The hardest thing that you've ever had to deal with. Because here this night, Thursday night, as Jesus sat at the table in the upper room with his disciples, he was just hours away from being abandoned, deserted, and denied by the people who he's currently reclining around the table with. And he's facing the most excruciating and painful crisis of his earthly life. And unlike you and I, he's fully aware of what is about to happen. He's fully aware of what takes place next. He can see the cross and all of its torment, and it's less than 24 hours ahead of him. Now, if you and I were in this situation, headed towards what Jesus is headed towards physically, aware fully of what was about to happen, how do you expect yourself to behave that night? Would you be complaining loudly about what was to come? Would you be expressing your frustration? Would you be expecting everybody else to minister to you and to care for you? Because see, on the surface, it actually looks like, on the outside looking in, like everything at this point in the story is totally out of control. Like Jesus is being swept up 
into the events of this time that Satan is actually winning. You look at what's happening. He's already convinced Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. It's going to happen in just a few hours. He's already convinced the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, to plot, kill, and destroy Jesus. He's got Pontius Pilate and Herod all ready to go for their part to play starting in just a few hours. In fact, the crowd has turned their hearts against Jesus, and they're ready the following day to be the ones that decide whether Jesus will go to the cross or Barabbas will go to the cross. It can seem like, looking from the outside, like God is losing this thing, like like history is slipping through God's hands. But friends, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, at no time did Jesus ever lose control over himself or the events of history. In fact, John reminds us that Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew in this moment where he'd come from. Jesus knew in this moment where he was going. Jesus knew in this moment what it was going to cost him and what was going to happen after it was all over. At no time did, in Jesus' earthly life did Jesus ever cease to be Jesus. Did he ever cease to be sovereign? Did he ever cease to be Lord? And the same thing is true today. Whether you face tornadoes or terrorist bombings or beheadings or the rise and the fall of our stock market or a pandemic or the confusion and turmoil of an impending presidential election or rebellious children, Jesus is never out of control. He's the sovereign Lord Almighty even when you and I can't see it. And even when we don't understand what's happening. In fact, look again at verse 1. It says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The phrase, Jesus knew his hour, reminds us that what is transpiring hasn't caught Jesus by surprise. It hasn't caught him off guard. In fact, the Bible teaches clearly this is what he was born for. This is what he was born to do. This hour had been planned and decreed by his father before he ever stepped down into this earth. All the political maneuvering of the Romans, the scheming of the Jewish leaders, their attempt to disrail him or disrupt him, none of them could cause or make his hour to be delayed even a single moment because God is in absolute control. I want you to think about this. Multiple times in Jesus' ministry have the crowds or the Romans or the Jewish leaders attempted to seize Jesus, to, to take and put their hands on him, to have him stoned to death. And what does the gospel say each and every time that they try this? But his hour had not yet come. We read it over and over through the gospels. His hour had not yet come. But friends, guess what? At this point in the story, his hour has come. The time for the Son of Man to be delivered up, for the Messiah to voluntarily hand over his life to his enemies has come. And we so often think in our world, and especially in 2023, as we look at the events that are swirling around us all the time, it can feel like God has lost control. It can feel like God is at least just not paying very good attention to what's happening, and nothing could be further from the truth. You see, because right here at the greatest crisis moment in all of human history, the Son of Man, the Messiah, God incarnate, is about to be put to death on a cross. 
And what I find totally, wonderfully unique about the Gospel of John is John's going to tell us what Jesus is thinking about in this moment. He's going to actually let us inside Jesus' mind so that we can see what Jesus is thinking about in this moment with all this chaos around him. John tells us what he's thinking about, and he tells us he's thinking about his own. His thoughts aren't on himself. His thoughts aren't on his pain. His thoughts are on us. His thoughts are on his disciples. As much as it might appear that he's lost grip on everything, the exact opposite of that is true. In fact, look at what verse 3 says again. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Do you understand that statement? How big of statement? Jesus, in this moment, knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. What does all things mean, by the way? Oh, okay, all things. We can figure that one out, right? <coughs> what that means is he had total power and total authority. <clears throat> and Jesus could do with everyone and anything, whatever he chose and whatever he pleased. <clears throat> it means Jesus was in control of Satan of Pontius Pilate, of Herod, of the men at the table with him, of the Roman government, of the Israelites. Jesus was in total control. He had all the power of heaven and earth at his disposal. And what is he doing with it? He's thinking of his own. Remember Matthew 26 actually tells us that if Jesus wanted to, he could have called down 12 legions of angels as he hung on the cross to deliver him up if he chose. Think about if you had that power, what would you do with it? Because Jesus had the ability to stop all of these plans in an instant. But why did he not? Because he was sent for this purpose, to rescue you and I. He was on a mission. He had a plan to save us. In fact, the Father had put all things into his hands. And what did Jesus do with it? I just love this. Look at in the context. It says this. The Father's put all things into my hands. He knew this. And then the very next line is so he got up from the table and begins to serve his disciples. That doesn't sound like those two sentences go together. I have all authority, all power, everything belongs to me. So I think I'll get up and wash some feet. Instead of letting thoughts of his own greatness, his own power, consume him, he begins to serve others. He begins to demonstrate his love. He begins to demonstrate his kindness. And he begins to demonstrate it to a group who in just a few hours are going to abandon him, who are going to leave him, who a couple of them, one is going to betray him and sell him off to be arrested, and another one's going to deny even ever knowing him. Friends, this is stunning that in the midst of such indescribable turmoil, such difficulty, the impending crucifixion is just that he's sitting in the shadow of it. What he's thinking about and what he's doing is he's serving and loving his own. Verse 3 again tells us, He's thinking about this fact that he's come from God. He knew that he'd come from God. And he knew he was going back to God. 
What, what does that mean? Well, it means that in this moment, Jesus is fully aware of who he is. He's fully aware of where he's come from. He's fully aware of where he's going. Perhaps he's hearing, remembering, reminded of the echoes of, of, of all of the past, listening to the angels sing praise around the throne. Maybe he's eternity past around the throne. Maybe he's reminded of the four living creatures who, who sit and cry in the sustained cry of holy, holy, holy. Maybe he's picturing these moments because he knows who he is and he knows where he's come from. And still chooses to think about others. John couldn't have been any clearer with us. He's telling us, as all of this truth is swirling around in Jesus' mind, he still instead chooses to practically love his disciples. So I want to look today at five characteristics of Jesus' love for his disciples. And it's true for you and I as well. The five characteristics of the love of God, the love of Jesus. And, and the first one is this. Number one is Jesus' loves. Jesus loves the unlovable. He loves the unlovable. It's good news, friends. If you read in verse 1 again, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, why did John point out that they were in the world? Where else would they be? Right? Of course, they're in the world. Where else would they be? So why is John pointing out that they were in the world? Why does John use this phrase? I believe he's using it so that he magnifies the reality that those that he's loving are fairly unlovely. That those whom Jesus is, is lavishing his love upon are not in any way, shape, or form deserving of this. And the beauty of God's love, <clears throat> the beauty of Jesus, is he doesn't wait for them to experience their final glorification. He doesn't wait for them to get their life cleaned up. He doesn't, get, he doesn't wait for them to get perfect or sinless or pure because they're never going to get there. He loves them. And lavishes his love upon them in the midst of their humanity. Romans 5.8 tells us it like this. God shows his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. See, Jesus loves his disciples the way that they are. He doesn't wait for them to get their life together. He doesn't wait for them to, to, to get their life all in order. He loves them just how they are. He's not waiting for them to change anything. He loves them exactly how they are, but he refuses to leave them stuck the way they are because he loves them so much. He wants to see them transform. He wants to see them live in freedom. But he's not waiting to love them for that reality to take place. You need to understand this because you can't change apart from the love of God. So if you believe that God isn't loving towards you because of your sinfulness, then friends, you're missing out. God loves the unlovable. The second thing about his love is it never fails. Jesus' love never fails. Again, that little note in verse 1, it says he loved them to the end. In spite of all that was happening, in spite of all that he would endure, he never grew weary. He never gave up on his love for them. He never wavered. He never weakened. He never waned. He knew that they were, were sinners. He knew that they were flawed. He knew that they would betray him. In fact, here, when did he know that? Before the foundations of the universe were laid. Did he still choose them? Yep. Did he still call them? Yep. Wait, Judas too? <clears throat> yep. He loved them. They weren't perfect, 
but he never gave up on them. With every reason in the world to just write these guys off, at least from a human perspective. He loved them all the way to the end. His love was unending. It was without pause. It was without hesitation. Think of it. Peter is about to deny him three different times. The last time to a girl, right? A little girl because he's so afraid that he's going to be mistreated the way that Jesus is, going to, is being mistreated. All the others are going to run off into the night. All of the rest are going to run off that night from the Garden of Gethsemane, leaving Jesus to face his accusers alone. But Jesus loved his disciples all the way to the end. As he hangs on the cross, he looks down. Where's Peter? Where's Andrew? Where's James? Where's Philip? Where's Thomas? Where's Matthew? Where's the other James? Where's Thaddeus? Where's Simon? Where's Judas? Where's Bartholomew? The only one there is John, there with the Marys at the foot of the cross. But Jesus still loves them because his love for them and his love for you and I isn't based on our performance isn't based on us earning it or deserving it. His love for us is unchangeable. It's unflappable. It's out of the abundance of His inexhaustible grace. Ephesians 4, 2, 4-5 through 5 says it like this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we're dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, it's by grace that you have been saved. See, Jesus' love for them and his love for us was unchanging. It, it, it continued on all the way to the end. Why? Because his love never fails. Here's the third thing. Some of you might struggle with this wording, but I want you to listen to the point. Jesus' love is possessive. It's possessive. I want you to notice in verse 1 how Jesus describes those that he loves. He says he loves his own. They're his own. They're his own personal possession. They're his because they were given to him by his father and he's going to purchase them and redeem them by his blood. I find this incredibly significant that John doesn't say Jesus loved his disciples or his followers or his believers or his sheep or even his friends. He says he loved his own. You may not feel like you belong to anyone else, but you are his own. You who live alone and doubt if anyone cares or anyone sees you, you are his own. You who live in fear that you might never achieve any significance in this life and that you yourself are a failure, you are his own. You may wonder out loud, why does nobody want me but you are his own. The creator of heaven and earth regards you as his own. You may find yourself saying, I'm not much in the eyes of others, but Jesus says, you're mine. That changes everything. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, says it like this, and boy, is this full of promises. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through waters, I'll be with you. 
And though the rivers and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. I just want you to let this truth wash over you this morning. This is your true identity if you are in Christ. You belong to Him. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. This is such a glorious privilege if you understand it. It's such an exalted position. It's such an intimate and personal relationship. God bought you. He made you and you belong to Him. That's who you are. That's your identity. That's what gives you your value and your worth. He paid such a price for you. Number four, Jesus' love is expressed through serving. Jesus' love is expressed through serving. His love isn't merely an inward affection or a feeling. It's not about how Jesus feels. Jesus tangibly demonstrates his love for us in a very unexpected, and actually, if you understand, it's really a socially offensive expression that Jesus uses here. In fact, uh, where Jesus is... Um, begins to get up and wash his disciples' feet. It comes right on the heels, as I said, of this moment where Jesus is realizing who really fully remembering where he's come from and where he's going, where it says all power and authority has been given to him. What does he do? Does he bark out commands? Peter, bring me my robe. John, my scepter. Matthew, my golden crown. Philip, prepare the throne. Now, here's what's funny. That's what the disciples wanted him to do. Remember, they keep asking him, Jesus, <clears throat> is it time now? Are you going to establish your kingdom now? Jesus, when you establish your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? Who's going to sit? Who's going to be the greatest one? They want him to do this. But that's not what Jesus does. And contrary to the image you may have in your head of the Last Supper, most of you probably picture the Da Vinci painting, you know, as they're sitting at the table. They weren't sitting on chairs at a table. That wasn't the tradition of the day. They would have been reclining on mats around a table together. That was the custom of the day, to recline on the floor, on mats, around the table. And when you recline, you'd come into a house, and if you lived in the first century, when you came into the house, you'd take your shoes off at the door. And if you were going to recline for hours with a bunch of people around a table, there was an issue. Don't touch me with your feet. They're disgusting, right? And so now, with their filthy feet, there's an issue. Their feet need to be cleaned. Now, everything was in place. The pitcher of water is there. The basin of water. The towel is there. But no one's volunteering for this really unpleasant job. In fact, I can just picture the disciples all kind of looking at the floor. Don't make eye contact, because if you make eye contact, right... It's going to become your job. So there, no one's doing it. No one's talking about it. And suddenly, Jesus gets up from the table. 
Now, we're familiar with foot washing. Even if you've never participated in a foot washing ceremony yourself, you've probably seen it. You know what it's all about. I was raised in a Lutheran church, and this was when we were founded in 1988. For the first many years, we were a Lutheran tradition before becoming non-denominational. And I can remember in the Lutheran tradition when we'd celebrate this night, that this night on the week of Easter, Passion Week it's called, Thursday night, anyone from the, from the liturgical, what's it called? Monday, Thursday, right? So on Monday, Thursday, we have secret language some of you don't know about, but Monday, Thursday was that night, liturgical tradition. And on that night, we would have a foot washing ceremony and we would take communion together because that's what Jesus is going to do here on this Thursday night. And I can remember being a kid and going to the service where we were going to wash each other's feet and just saying, Jesus, please don't give me someone with weird feet. Please don't give me someone with fungus. Please give me someone with normal feet. And I'm sure everyone who attended those services had pre-washed their feet, right? They'd put on fresh socks, they'd clip their toenails before coming, maybe even a little uh, deodorant spray on the feet before we got to church. But how different is that than what Jesus would have experienced on that First night where this took place in the first century, think about it. No socks, no pavement, no sidewalks, dirty roads, filth, animals. The ugliness and the stink and the dirt that they would have been just accustomed to in their culture of wearing open-toed sandals. Now, in Oregon, we know something about this, right? In Oregon, we have a lot of what I like to affectionately refer to as choco-wearing Oregon hippies, right? Who like to go hiking in their sandals. You might understand, feet get disgusting when you do that. In fact, my kids live in the summertime in Crocs. Okay? And when you wear Crocs all day outside in the dirt, at the end of the day, it's rough. Okay? Those things literally have to be thrown out right at the end of the season. This was the norm in Jesus' time. So when the disciples came into the table that night, this is, a, this is an incredibly intimate thing that Jesus is going to do. It's not pretty. But even bigger than the physical aspect of it, you have to understand, is the social reality. In fact, as I was reading this week in preparation, it, one of the things that jumps off is really in history, this is a unique moment. Nowhere in Jewish history and nowhere in Roman or even Greek history is there a single time where there's a story about a, um, about a master or somebody in charge or in power washing the feet of their subordinates. This just wasn't done. It was usually something done by a servant, not even the household, right? This is not something that you would see God himself incarnate step down and do. And in this moment, think about this. Jesus is now thinking about where he's come from, where he's going. All authority, all power has been given to him. And he gets up, takes off his outer robe, wraps a towel around his waist, and begins washing his disciples' feet. Kneeling down. Peter, who's, I relate with Peter a lot. Peter just blurts out the things that he's thinking about. He's a loud mouth, okay? And Peter says what we're all thinking. Peter says, not me. Uh-uh, Jesus. I'll wash your feet, but you're not going to wash my feet. No way. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, you don't get it. 
You'll get it later, but you don't get it now. Because remember, Jesus made it clear that while the Son of Man was here on earth, He came, Luke 22, verse 27, He came among you as what? One who serves. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then learn to be a servant of them all. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. This is core teaching of Jesus, but it wasn't just something He talked about. It wasn't just theoretical to Jesus. This is the practices of Jesus. He gets down from the dinner table and he washes the filthy feet of men who are about to betray him, including, number five, Jesus loves his enemies. Jesus loves his enemies. What are we to make of the fact that Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot? We know Judas was present because the text puts him there. The text repeatedly refers to the disciples as a group being present without making an exception of Judas. What must have Judas, what would Judas have been thinking as Jesus was bent down at his feet, washing the filth off of his feet, drying them with a towel around his waist? What a profound demonstration for us of how we are called to love our enemies. Because the next time you and I wonder how we are to relate to the people who betray us, the people who slander us, the people who gossip about us, the people who scheme against us, I want you to picture this. Jesus on his hands and knees, washing the feet of Judas on the night, minutes before his betrayal. Judas is going to lead Jesus' torturers and killers directly to him just hours from this moment. And yet, Jesus is washing and serving and demonstrating his love for him in such an intimate and tangible way. Matthew 5, 43 through 44, Jesus says this, You've heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And see, what I love about Jesus is his teaching isn't just, oh, that's great, that's nice. No, he's going to show us what that looks like. He's going to demonstrate that to us. Now, I want to tell you something. Have you ever read through like Paul's writings and suddenly you're reading through Paul's writings and he just all of a sudden breaks out in praise, just starts telling you about how great, how awesome God is? As I was writing this, I wanted to describe for you the love of God, the love of Jesus. Now, we sing a song uh, many years in the past where we talk about if we were to, to describe to you the love of Jesus, if we were to describe to you the love of God, it would take an ocean's worth of ink, and if the whole sky was a piece of paper, it couldn't hold it all, right? There's just it, You'd run out. There wasn't enough. And as I was thinking about adjectives that I wanted to use to describe the love of God, I got a little carried away. And then I organized them alphabetically. And then I had to cut like three-quarters of them because it got ridiculous. Let me describe to you God's love alphabetically. It's abundant. It's audacious. It's awesome. It's beautiful. It's blissful. It's boundless. It's caring. It's compelling. It's constant. It's consuming. It's costly. It's delightful. It's dependable, it's enduring, it's enriching, it's eternal, it's excellent, it's extravagant, it's fierce, it's flawless, it's fragrant, 
It's fulfilling. It's generous and glorious. It's healing and holy and immense and indescribable and inspiring and irreplaceable and joyful and kind and knowable and lasting and life-giving and limitless and lovely and majestic and magnificent and measureless and merciful and mighty and near, nourishing, outrageous, outstanding, overwhelming, passionate, patient, perfect, persistent. It's quieting. It's radiant, it's radical, it's redeeming, it's rejuvenating, it's remarkable, it's restorative, it's reconciling, it's relentless, it's sacrificial, it's saving and savoring and satisfying and steadfast and strengthening and sustaining. It's tender and timely and transcendent and trustworthy. It's unconditional, it's uncontainable, it's unending. It's unfailing, it's valuable, it's vast, it's victorious, it's welcoming, it's winsome, it's wonderful, it's zealous. This is the love of Jesus. Band, you can come back up. See, my, my hope for us today, friends, is that you would move beyond knowing about Jesus that you'd put yourself in the upper room and you'd see and catch his heart, how much he loves you. How much he loves you to, in spite of and despite what you've said and what you've done. Because I think for many of us, we view ourselves, we know ourselves, and we say, how could God possibly love me like this? And what, the God, what John tells us in this wonderful chapter is that the love of God for you isn't based on you. It's who He is. It's who He is. You're His own. And He loves you with an everlasting love. Friends, my goal for you, my heart for you, my prayer for you today as we begin to worship again is that you would see this scripture and it would become for you an immovable rock of assurance of just how much you are loved by God. Maybe you relate to the disciples. Maybe you feel like you've turned your back. Maybe you feel like you've only gone part way in. Maybe you feel like, man, I've not really been honest where I'm at, what's going on. I just want to encourage you right here today, let's come near to Jesus. Let's let his unimaginable love wash over us.